a conversation about autoimmune diseases and why biotechs don't pay a dividend. Because this is where the money is. Hey Fools, healthcare analyst Michael Douglas here with our healthcare contributor Todd Campbell all the way from New Hampshire. Todd, how's it going? It's going well. I'm, I'm getting really excited about the apple pie tomorrow. How about you? <laughs> Uh, yeah, a blueberry and coconut cream, I think, is what's, uh, what's, what's really high on my list. Um, and as we discussed beforehand, will probably be my breakfast the next morning, and if I can make it happen, the morning after. Uh, so uh, I guess Thanksgiving hacks for everyone to get the maximum amount of sugar and, and, and bad food. Uh, definitely looking forward to that. Hope everyone, by the way, has a fantastic Thanksgiving. All right, but we've got, we've got before that, before we can have our, have our desserts, let's get into some uh, some important investing stuff. We're going to start off with a conversation about uh, an autoimmune disease drug called Stellara. Um, but but before we get into that, I, I want to sort of uh, talk a little bit about what the uh, problems and pitfalls for a drug are. So when, when you have a drug that comes, um, that is being tested, you know, the first question is safety, right? Is the drug safe? Because if it causes liver failure, or heart attacks, you know, chances are pretty good it's not going to be approved, right? The second thing is, does it actually work, right? So when we look at a lot of Alzheimer's disease drugs that have been some of the base inhibitors that have come out in the last few years, um, they have just not been effective. They've been perfectly safe, but not effective. And so those are two things you really have to watch. And the third is um, whether a drug is then commercially successful, whether there's the money behind it, the marketing team, the experienced sales team behind it to really make it a success. Stellara has has been fine in those first three, but now it's facing kind of the fourth problem, comp competition. But but first off, you know, let's talk about what a success Stellara has been, Todd. Well, you know, this has been a big big drug for Johnson and Johnson. Um, it's used to treat psoriasis, mm -hmm. and psoriasis is a pretty big indication. It affects a lot of people. I mean, there's there's over a million people here in the U.S. There's a couple million people in Europe. Um, that use these drugs, rely on these drugs to improve their symptoms. And Stellara has done a very good job at winning away uh, market share from drugs like Enbrel and Humira. Um, as a result, you know, Johnson is racking up some pretty substantial sales. The sales in the third quarter of the, for the drug were about uh, $540 million, which gives it a $2 billion a year run rate. And that was up 47% year over year. Yeah, no, it's big numbers for Stellara, and, and as you pointed out, um, you know, psoriasis affects, what, I think, about 3% of the world population, around 125 million people worldwide. So when, when you're thinking about really big diseases, um, psoriasis is up there. Um, hepatitis C is, uh, you know, kind of in the 150 to 180 million people range, you know, more or less, depending on the estimate. These are, you know, your really big diseases, your really big indications. The opportunity for a, a, a drug to really help a large number of people. But, okay, so Stellara, successful naturally it's gonna start uh, getting competitors. Just like Humira, uh, which was last year the number one selling drug in the world, in part because of this psoriasis indication that Stellara is fighting it on, uh, you know, attracted competitors like Stellara. So, so uh, a number of competitors, we've got Novartis, uh, you know, Johnson Johnson has a, a follow-up drug, drug that they're working on, um, you know, uh, Amgen's coming out with Brotolumab. You know, which of these competitors should investors really be most concerned about when they're thinking about Stellara's opportunity to continue holding on to and perhaps gaining market share? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. There, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a very interesting uh, battleground over the next two years to see how this shakes out. It's funny, all of these companies are saying, hey, we have a billion-dollar drug. This is going to be a billion-dollar drug. Amgen has said it. Uh, Novartis has said it. 
and Celgene has said it. Uh -huh. So they both have expectations, all three of them have expectations that their drugs are going to be blockbusters. Whether or not that plays out remains to be seen. I mean, Stellara has Johnson & Johnson in its corner, and Johnson & Johnson has a massive uh, market is a massive marketing machine. I mean, yeah. they, they have the relationships. It's going to be hard to win those doctors over. Um, that being said, the closest competitor uh, that could challenge them is Novartis. Uh, Novartis has a drug coming. It's Cosentix, and Cosentix has shown very strong efficacy, solid safety during trials. Um, it's already in front of the FDA. Uh, the FDA's advisory committee uh, did give it a unanimous uh, nod for approval, and that clears the way for a decision in January from the FDA. So that one will come first. And then behind that will be Amgen's drug. Now, Amgen just reported head-to-head -head results against Stellara that were pretty impressive. And those results may mean that it stands the best chance of directly cutting into Stellaris market share and winning away that money. Yeah, well, and, and, and you bring up a really good point here, Todd, which is that you know it's 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 difficult a lot of the time to figure out whether one drug is going to be better than another drug because there are always differences in in uh, clinical trial design. We always have to be really really careful about sort of looking at the population and what exactly it's being tested for and what the efficacy measures are uh, when we're comparing across trials. It's very difficult to do. However, with brotolumab. Uh, which is Amgen's drug, they did a head-to-head. -head. They said, we're going to, you know, same population, Bertolumab versus Stellara, which is better? And they showed Bertolumab was. And this is, I, I think, their second phase three um, clinical trial, which is those big ones that really showed that. So really, really good news for Amgen there. Yeah, they've, they've had, I think this was actually the third yeah, and third. second most recently uh, announced. So it's probably likely that we'll see a filing for approval of this drug uh, within the next three to six months. Yeah. So it'll be very interesting to see how that shakes out. In the head-to-head, -head, as far as results, um, I think Stellara cleared, you know, reduced symptoms by at least 75% uh, in about 69% of patients. Um, but Amgen's drug did better. I mean, it was 80%-ish. It was yeah, so definitely something to, to watch. And, and, and again, you know, we know that healthcare can be like really complicated and really you have to really get into the details to really understand what's going on. Um, and, and that's really one of the benefits of Foolish Investing is if you really do your research, you will hopefully understand more than what a lot of the market is looking at with these. And, and that's sort of, to my mind, an opportunity to exploit sort of inefficiencies in healthcare investing where people are overreacting to data because they haven't really understood what's going on yet. Right. Yeah. Right. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, biotech is not an easy subject for people to get their arms around. And biotech investing, you know, isn't going to work for everyone. Dividend investors, for example, right. um, oftentimes struggle to find something that they can invest in in the space. Well, yeah, in part because, I mean, let's face it, nice segue. You, <laughs> you, uh, you beat me on my own segue into our second part, which is why biotechs don't pay dividends. Uh, you know, Amgen is the only biotech that pays a dividend. Yes. Yeah, and it's not a very big one. No, it's like what, one and a half percent, about, two maybe? I think it's like 1.3. Oh, I don't wow. know. Yeah, and the stock has been rallying, so the yield has been dropping. Um, yeah, I mean, the biotech companies are growth companies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you know as well as I do, management has to make a decision. They have to either take their profits and return them to 
shareholders through dividends and buybacks or take those profits and use them for research and development or acquisitions. And biotech is an area where oftentimes the management decides, hey, it's better to put that money back into R&D or go out and buy a company that has emerging technology instead. Well, and I'll tell you, I mean, for me, um, you know, I, I, I certainly invest in some dividend stocks. I mean, Johnson & Johnson, for example, is one I'm invested in. Um, but, but to my mind, uh, a dividend to some extent is kind of management's acknowledgement that, well, you know, there isn't a better place for us to deploy our cash right now. And that does raise some questions, especially in a space like biotech where you have lots of um, exciting new therapies that, that really could be uh, could be big. Now, of course, it's difficult to move the needle for a big company, a Johnson Johnson, a Bristol Myers Squibb, an Eli Lilly. But when you're thinking about your smaller companies, uh, your big biotechs, for example, like Celgene, which I'm also a shareholder of, um, and, and some of your uh, some of your mid and small caps, it's like, well, you know, if you're getting all this cash, maybe it's time to try and find the next big, you know, the next Tesla for Celgene, or the next uh, Stellara, uh, or the next, um, you know, Brodolumab. Yeah, it, you know, it's going to be frustrating to some extent for, you know, people who like dividends. Yeah. Because they're looking at it and they're saying, wow, these companies are generating out billions of dollars in revenue off of these drugs, and their margins in, are 50%, 60%. Why aren't they sending some of that money back? Yeah. But the reality is that drugs also have a limited shelf life mm -hmm. in that, you know, patent protection only lasts so long. They have to continually make these investments back into their franchise if they hope to continue to grow over time. You know, Gilead is a great example because you look, simply look at that and you say, well, why didn't they take the money from their HIV franchise in the 2000s and give that back to investors in the form of a dividend? Well, instead, they ended up buying Pharma Asset for $11 billion in 2012, and that's how they got Savaldi. Yeah, well, it was funny about that, of course. Everyone was like, oh my gosh, Pharma said, you know, $11 billion, that seems... It seems like a lot of money. Well, you know, Savaldi's generated, what, just under $9 billion in its first three full quarters on the market? I mean, you know, Gilead is coming off smelling like roses here. This is exactly the right call by them. And when you think about how much shareholder value that can generate long term, um, it's enormous. And especially when, you know, with Harvoni now coming on uh, online, which is their, their sort of next version of Savaldi, um, that's cleared for uh, all oral interferon free for hepatitis type 1 patients, uh, hepatitis C type 1 patients. Uh, and then, you know, their opportunity to build out their cancer franchise, to reinvest in that HIV franchise. I mean, it, it's that sort of thing that's like, okay, you know, maybe a, maybe, a, maybe a dividend doesn't make as much sense when there's so much opportunity for growth still. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that what, you know, biotech investors, are probably going to have to look at it and say, these are growth stories, they're a little bit more speculative, and as a result, I'm not going to get that dividend payout. Um, and if I want that dividend payout, I'm probably going to have to focus more on pharmaceutical companies like Johnson & Johnson. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it certainly makes sense as part of a, part of a, a balanced investment strategy. I mean, I would never advocate for biotech to be the majority of someone's portfolio unless they really understand the science and are very confident in their... Um, in their uh, investing, and, and even then, I would say, oh gosh, that seems that seems like a little much. You know, I I do tend to be kind of a mixed investor. I tend to like my combination of sort of drier income plays and then strong growth stories. Um, but but I think you know when you're looking for that growth opportunity, there is really some option there for just incredible growth. Uh, Gilead and Celgene just being two big examples. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely.
All right, cool. Uh, Todd, uh, thank you as always for, for your two cents. This is uh, really helpful. I hope it's helpful for everyone. Um, uh, folks, uh, if you ever have any questions, uh, please uh, email us at hc at fool.com. That's hc is in healthcare at fool.com. Uh, we're happy to uh, answer any questions, um, you know, have, uh, have guests on the show, anything like that. Uh, also, hope you all have a great Thanksgiving. Uh, check back to fool.com for all your investing needs and full on.